Today we're studying, beginning the study actually, of one of the most famous passages of Scripture in the Bible. Someone were to ask you, where would you go in the Bible to find a passage about love? Well, invariably, this would be the chapter that they use. Often you'll hear this chapter uh, spoken in weddings, as part of wedding ceremonies. Maybe a bride or a groom may recite part of this passage to one another. We're not going to study the entire passage today, but uh, this has been used in that way. It's a wonderful passage concerning love, but the most important thing that we really need to do as we, as we consider this is to think about the context in which this was written. You really can't understand it like it's supposed to be until you understand the context in which the author, who is the Apostle Paul, is speaking. In the midst of all of the problems that were in the church at Corinth, and Paul has been giving many different rebukes throughout these first 12 chapters, in the midst of all of those problems, it, Paul just stops right here, and he says, hold on just a minute, let's talk about something else. And, and this really is just like a breath of fresh air. All of these rebukes are going on. He's chastising the church. And then he stops here to talk about love. And the highest aspiration that that any Christian could have would be to love as Christ loves. And we're going to talk about it in just a few minutes, but the identifying mark of Christianity is love. In fact, you can advance all of the arguments that you like and talk about how you're a Christian and and how you stand for the Lord and, and how you love one another. But the way that you actually prove that you are a Christian is through the kind of love that Paul is talking about in this passage. And he says all of the arguments that you may make, if you don't have love, all of them are useless to convince anyone that you are a true believer in Christ. So that is really the theme that Paul gives us in chapter 13. Let's, uh, let's stand, if you would, please, and let's read God's Word today. We're looking at chapter 13. We're going to study just the first three verses this morning. First uh, Corinthians 13, beginning with verse number 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, and of course there he means love, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Though I bestow all of my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity... It profiteth me nothing. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you today. We're just indeed so thankful that we're able to be here and to talk about your word. I ask you, Lord, that you would encourage hearts with the message this morning. Draw us close to you. May we have a better understanding of the kind of love that Paul speaks of in these first three verses. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This is really a great beginning to a study on love and a supremacy of love is really what Paul has in his mind as he begins this chapter. As I said, you can't really fully understand what, what Paul means about love here unless you take it in the context in which it's written. So you have to consider what comes before this chapter in chapter 12 and, and what he's written previously, and then also what Paul will say after uh, what we've just read. The context that he's speaking in is spiritual gifts. And he's explaining how that God has gifted different people in the church with many different spiritual gifts that God uses for the edification of the church. And there's a very peculiar way, a very special way, that God has tempered the entire body of Christ together. All of us, as we are members of this one church, God has put us together in a, in a very special way 
that we might be able to carry out his work in the world. Now, gifts are very important. Spiritual gifts that God has given are very important for the church. But what happened in the church at Corinth is that the gifts themselves had become elevated above everything else. The gifts had become selfish. And so there was one person who was thinking, well, I have a gift that you don't have. So that makes me a a more spiritual person than you are. And so the gifts in Corinth began to be used in a a very uh, selfish way. Now, particularly, the one gift of speaking in tongues, this is the one that they, they made number one on the list in Corinth, when actually, as we study the Word of God further, we find out that speaking in tongues, even at that time, was the least of all gifts. So they had this completely upside down in the Corinthian church. So in the middle of this, in the middle of the discussion, Paul just stops. And he says, let's halt the discussion right here. I want to show you what's most important for a Christian. Gifts are great. Gifts are wonderful. We need gifts in the church. But you have to use the gift as God intends. And you have to exercise your gift in the spirit of love, exactly as God tells you to do. Now today, we're going to talk about love, and particularly in the context of spiritual gifts. So let's speak, first of all, today about the sacrifice of love. Love is an, is an interesting word in the New Testament. We notice here that our King James translators have, have used the word charity. Charity had a different meaning in the 17th century than it does now. When they first translated this word, of course, they did mean, mean love. They translated the Greek word into, into English, and they used the word charity. But it really means love. But it's not love in the way that we usually think about it. When we think about love, what comes into our mind most of all is the pounding heart. It's the the sensual desire. It's really that kind of feeling we talk about love. But I want you to notice that love is not romantic feelings. That's not what the Bible is speaking of. Now, in, in the scriptures, we only have, or in the English language, I should say, we only have one word for love. That's L-O-V-E. One word for love, and that stands for all different kinds of love. But in the Greek language, there are actually four different words that are used for love. There are only two of those words that are used in the New Testament. Not all four are used, but there are two words used in the New Testament for love. And the Bible never uses love in the sense of romantic love. You won't find this particular word translated from the Greek, which is eros. You won't find that in the New Testament. Sensual, romantic, desire kind of love is not found in the Bible. Uh, Eros, of course, is where we get the word erotic. And so whenever you see the word love in the New Testament, especially when it's talking, for instance, about the love that a husband has for his wife, it's not even talking about romantic feelings. It's really a different kind of love. As I say, we think about heart palpitations, we think about erotic desire, and we think that a person who doesn't experience that, who who doesn't have that kind of relationship with another person, then that person really does not know what love is. But that doesn't even register on the Bible scale of love. This is not what Paul talks about. Now, we know very clearly that Paul couldn't be speaking of, of that kind of love. It doesn't, as I say, register on the Bible scale because people fall in and out of that kind of love all the time. All you have to do is turn on daytime TV, watch uh, 30 minutes of As the Stomach Turns, and you'll find that people falling in and out of love all of the time. People are switching around with all their different partners. And the reason that 
so many marriages fall apart today is because many of them are actually built upon that kind of love. They're built on that superficial feeling. It's the hormones, it's the eros, and that kind of feeling can quickly go away. And so whenever you hear people say today, when they say, I love you, what they really mean is, I love me. And as long as you don't please me, then I don't love you. And so that's why so many marriages fall apart today. When the passion goes out of it, it all falls apart because it's not built upon the right kind of love that a marriage really needs. So when the Bible, and when Paul speaks about love, he's not talking about romantic feelings. Then also, love is not emotional feelings. Love is not just an attachment that you have for someone. The second word that the Bible uses for love is the word philio, and that is brotherly love. Back when we were studying the Gospel of John, we discussed this, and philio, philio, of course, is where Philadelphia comes from, the city of brotherly love. And if you remember, when uh, Peter was speaking to, to Jesus, Peter used this word philio. Jesus asked him a question. He said, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Jesus had in mind a different kind of love, and he used a different word in his question, and he meant a a commitment type of love, full commitment, a deep abiding type of love. But when Peter answered that question, he didn't use the same word that Jesus used. He came back with this word philio, and it's more like I have an attachment to you. I have brotherly love with you. But that's not what Jesus says that Christians really need. So what is this love? I mean, what is the kind of love that, that Paul speaks in the passage and he says, without this kind of love, I'm nothing at all. How do you define this kind of love? Today I've given you a definition on your listening sheet if you'd like to fill this in. Love is the sacrificial, joyful desire to put your welfare above mine. The word that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 for charity, most of you know it, most of you know this word love, it's the word agape. And this is exactly what it means. It is a very special kind of love. Now, it's not just a desire, it's a joyful desire, and this is the desire that looks at your needs, that looks at your welfare, and says, I am going to consider you always for me. Where do you think that we would find an example of that kind of love in action? Well, most of us would very readily understand that the place that you would go is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's the one who, who showed us this kind of love. John 3.16 is probably the most famous passage in the Bible. Uh, Even in the past two sermons, I've talked about John 3.16. And there it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the word that Jesus used for love in that passage, that's the word agape. And then when he said in John 15, 13, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, that's also that word agape. So Jesus' love was truly a sacrificial love. And so whenever you're going to measure what true love is like, you always put it up against this particular kind of love, the love that God had in sending Jesus Christ into the world to die for our sins. Well, Jesus took that commission upon him gladly. He didn't do it grudgingly. Jesus didn't come to this earth with a poor attitude like, why do I have to do this? I mean, these people are so undeserving. Why do I come and die for them? But Scripture actually says that it was for the joy that was set before him. There was a desire that he had. 
And so Jesus was willing to step out of the glories of heaven and he would come to this earth to die for unworthy, hell-deserving sinners. In fact, the scriptures teach us that Christ actually took our hell for us. Did you know that? Christ suffered hell for us. When Jesus went on to, into the, onto the cross, there he suffered hell, and his suffering was in, in such a capacity that he was able actually to withstand the suffering and the magnitude of all the sins of everyone who would ever believe in him being placed upon him. And so when Christ died on the cross, he suffered the actual penalty that every one of us would have to suffer were we to go to hell and suffer those penalties for ourselves. Only Christ could do that. And the reason he was able is because he's the infinite God. An infinite God can be infinite in sufferings. And so what Christ did was to put his welfare above mine. Christ put his welfare above yours. If you're a believer in him, then he suffered what you should have had to suffer. Now, the most remarkable thing about this kind of love is that Christ did this while we were still his enemies. We might be able to understand how that we would do this for someone that we actually loved ourselves or that we say that we love, someone that we've already established a relationship with. If someone has done something for us and, and uh, we're trying to repay them or we have some kind of affection for that person, then perhaps we might be able to understand why that you would give your life for that person. But what if that person is an enemy of yours? What if this person that you're going to help, given half a chance, would pick up a hammer and nails and would drive those nails into your hands and your feet? What if this person would spit on you and he would slap you and beat you with sticks on the head? What if that person would even take people that you love and take them out and torture them to death? Would you see that person in danger and then at the risk of your own life, would you save that person? And yet that is exactly what Christ did. And yet further than that, would you be happy to do that? Would you with joyful desire give your life for that person? Well, when you think about that, you're, you're just starting to get a little bit of a glimpse of what Christ actually did. But even that doesn't fully paint the picture because the very worst thing that we could do against any person of the human race is nothing in compared to what we have done against a holy God. And so this is just a remarkable thing that Jesus, as the holy God, was willing to come to this earth and he sacrificed himself. And what he was doing, he was putting your welfare and he put my welfare above his own. Now, you see, this is exactly where Paul is going with this text. This is not really just a simple matter when we talk about love. This is the kind of love that rules out my pride it disintegrates my arrogance. It pulverizes all of my self-seeking attitudes. And this is a love that will never let me put me above you. Now, do we have people that actually reach that kind of love? Well, I would say among the people of the world, we absolutely do not. A person who is an unbeliever, someone who doesn't know Christ, really cannot understand this kind of love. Now, you might be a, a very good parent, you may love your children as much as you can. You may be a good husband or a good wife. You love your spouse. But unless you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you'll never really understand what kind of love that I'm talking about here. You can't reach this kind of love. But I would also say, sadly, that there are many Christians, and probably most Christians, who also do not reach this kind of love. You look in a church, just as we have here. Now, we, we have a good church, and... And uh, I praise the Lord for the people that we have. We get along very well. 
quite honestly, there are sometimes arguments in the church. There are disputes that people have with one another. Uh, every now and then you'll see somebody grab somebody out on the parking lot and begin to fill, fill their ear with 15 or 20 minutes of all the things that have gone on the church that they're angry about. Why do people do that? Because they don't have this kind of love. You have churches where people sit on one side of the aisle and won't sit on the other because their folks over there they can't get along with. And so they don't have this kind of love. And that's exactly why Paul stops right here to talk about this. People sit in church with long faces because Sister Sally or Brother Joe or somebody said something against me. Maybe it was unintentional, maybe it wasn't. But instead of forgiving that person and thinking as Christ thought and loving as Christ loved, they just won't do it. And so this is why Paul brings it up. Gifts, having all the spiritual gifts at, at Corinth, having the usage of those gifts and the greatest displays of those gifts meant nothing at all unless they were used in love. So here you have selfish purposes, you have divisions, and the conclusion of the matter is without love, none of those things matter. The best spiritual gift that you could possibly be given, if it is not used in love, no matter how impressive the display of that gift, if it is not used in sacrificial, joyful, desirous love, Paul says, this amounts to absolutely nothing. Now, that's what you need more than anything else in the entire world. I mean, you can get rid of all other things. If you don't have this, if you're a fraud, you're a hypocrite, you're a phony, you are a pretender, if you ever try to practice Christianity and say, I am a follower and a believer of Jesus Christ, if I do not have this kind of love, you simply can't do it. Now, that leads me to the next observation, and that is the superiority of love. Now, the context, once again, of the Scripture is the misuse of this spiritual gifts. So Paul's not talking about weddings here. This is not what this passage was intended to portray, and neither is this a hallmark card that Paul has written that we send off to our Valentine on Valentine's Day. He's speaking in the context of spiritual gifts, and he's talking about the inferiority of all spiritual gifts compared to the very highest principle of Christianity. Well, let's take a look at the text and see what he has to say then. In verse number 1, his first statement is, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, if I have not love, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. I think it's very interesting that Paul starts out chapter 13 with the gift of tongues. I mean, that's the very first thing that he mentions. He ended the previous section in chapter 12 also mentioning tongues, but there's a ranking of gifts that we have in that 12th chapter. And you'll notice that in the ranking of spiritual gifts that the gift of tongues is the one that came dead last. Of all the gifts, it was the last. And yet there in the Corinthian church, the people that were practicing the speaking in tongues, they thought that they were the cat's meow. Uh, they thought they had the greatest spiritual gift. And so like many churches do today, they put that up there front and center and they said, this is the gift that you need to have. But Paul comes along and he sticks a pin in that gift. This one that they thought was so great, Paul comes and he drives a spike right into the heart of it and says, you're doing it all wrong. Now, some people will look at this passage and Paul says, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, and some people think, well, Paul used the word angels there because that means there, there really must be some kind of an otherworldly language that angels speak and that 
if in the right circumstances, that God will give you the ability to speak in this otherworldly language. And so they call that the angelic language. Now, if you've ever listened to anybody try to do that, it comes out as gobbledygook. And the amazing thing about it is that any time you read in Scripture about an angel who ever spoke, think about it. Any time an angel in Scripture ever spoke, what did he speak? He spoke a language that people could understand. There's, no, there's nothing there about this crazy languages that are people trying to speak. Angels spoke to Abraham. Lot spoke to angels. An angel spoke to Peter. And curiously enough, when the angel Gabriel appeared first to, first to Mary and then to Joseph and spoke to them, that neither one of them said, come again? I didn't quite understand that. What exactly were you telling me? No, they spoke in a language they could understand. We don't have anything in Scripture that gives us any indication at all that there is some unknown language that angels are able to speak, some heavenly language that nobody knows about. We're talking about tongues here are the languages that people use. But let's suppose for just a moment that this really does exist. And let's say that, yes, you can speak in this. What does Paul say about it? Well, he says that language is lost without love. Now, here the word tongue refers to language. Paul says that you can speak any language that you want. You can speak French and German, Russian, uh, 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 Spanish, whatever it is. You can know a hundred languages, speak a hundred living languages and 25 dead languages. I don't care if you know Latin and if you know Mayan. You can speak it all with the elocution of James Earl Jones and the eloquence of William Shakespeare. You can speak in an angel ease if that's what they speak. You could speak like Michael the archangel, Paul says, but if you don't have love, that's nothing but a bunch of noise. Now, do you see the last part of the verse? He says, you become like a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. In Paul's day, the people would have understood that very well because this is one of the things that the pagans did. In the pagan rituals, they were used to making all kinds of noise to get the attention of their gods. So they would clang cymbals together. They would, they would uh, just speak loudly and try to get the attention of their gods. Remember back in the Old Testament when Elijah had that contest on uh, Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal? Uh, one of the things Elijah said to them, said, maybe you need to talk a little bit louder. Make a little bit more noise because perhaps your God is off on a far journey and he can't hear you. And that's exactly what they did. They started speaking louder. They made all kinds of noise trying to raise the attention of their God. This is what Paul is telling this church. He says, without love, you might as well act like the heathens. You think that you honor God when you speak in tongues? And he says, that's a farce. Speak in tongues all that you want, but without love and a willingness to see that you are nothing but an instrument in the hand of God. That is all for nothing. You know, some people think that they can speak the language of love. When I was uh, in uh, school, I had five years of French. When I got into college, my French teacher said, well, I think that you need to become a French major. So I learned a lot about French, and many people consider French to be the language of love. You know, when I think about the language of love uh, in French, I always think about Pepe Le Pew. Does everybody know who Pepe Le Pew is? Oh, of course, Bob knows. Pepe Le Pew is that uh, French-speaking skunk, and he's always trying to romance a cat. Now, he has this real sultry voice, and he really sounds good, but he's just really a skunk. And all that nice speaking and the sultry romantic voice amounts to nothing because the smell betrays him. You know, that's the way I think it is a lot with the tongue-talking movement. 
They say it comes from the Spirit, but observe it for a while. Watch it for a little while. And in the end, you find out there's a skunk in there somewhere. Paul says, Corinthians, speak in all the tongues that you want, as many as you want, but your language is lost for all of the good and for all the power that it will have with God. But then he goes on because there are other spiritual gifts that he compares it to. Next, he says, though I have the gift of prophecy. So next then, preaching is powerless without love. Now, remember that almost always when we talk about prophecy in the New Testament, that it's really speaking about preaching, just like I'm doing today. Preaching is, uh, I think today, the most significant gift that we have in the New Testament. Now, you may ask, well, why is that? Well, preaching is the way that people come to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's through preaching that people are saved. If you remember in Romans chapter 13, Paul says, Whosoever calls upon the, Romans 10 rather, Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But you also remember that he went on and he said, How shall they hear without a preacher? So preacher is a, preaching is a very significant spiritual gift. But I believe that preaching and the power of preaching totally gets zapped when you don't preach in love. So you can stand up in a pulpit and all the words can come out just right. Mine usually don't, but your words can come out all just the way that they should. But when you preach without love, it ends up being empty and hollow. John says in 1 John, if we say that we love God and we don't love our brother, then we're a liar. And a preacher who stands up and preaches to people and talks about love and make, makes all the, the comments that he makes about love and he really has no love for the people, then he's not really someone who is preaching in the way God wants him to preach. And certainly he, he, his, his preaching is completely lost on the people. Love has to be in that. So love is integral to the preaching of the gospel of Christ. Now we see great demonstrations of this over and over throughout the Bible. But one thing I want to make very clear is that God can even take imperfect people. I mean, people who can't, don't speak as they always should in love and don't display the perfect kind of love that they should have, and God uses them. We have an example of that in the Old Testament with Jonah. You know, we, lo we love to relate that great story of Jonah, you know, Jonah and the whale. It's a, it's a wonderful story. And we remember in the story that, that Jonah disobeyed God at first, and he decided he wasn't going to do what God wanted him to do, so he took off in the opposite direction of where God said to go. While he was on a ship sailing away, um, there was a great storm, and in order to calm the storm, the men on the ship decided the best thing that we can do, and Joan even asked for it, said, throw me overboard. And when they did, there God had a whale prepared with his mouth open, and Jonah was swallowed by that whale. Well, Jonah got inside the whale, and he started doing some repenting. Started doing some backtracking pretty quickly, and he started to get right with God. So what happened? The whale spit Jonah out on the dry ground. Now, I, I have a feeling that that old whale didn't like the taste of Jonah too much. I mean, uh, he was getting a little bit of that Pepe Le Pew inside of him, and he didn't really like that. So he spit Jonah out. But, you know, we usually stop the story right there. Jonah got in the whale. Jonah got out of the whale, and that's where we end it. But the story goes on. Jonah did do what God told him to do. He did go to Nineveh where he was supposed to preach, and he did preach the word of God there, and there were thousands of people that were saved in the city of Nineveh. But you know that Jonah was very unhappy about it. Jonah complained, God, why did you send me to preach to these Gentiles? Why preach to Gentiles? I don't like that. 
And so Jonah was very upset about it. His preaching was not done in love, yet God was able to use the preaching. So I'm not saying that God has to have perfect people in order to get the message across. But we do have other places where a message spoken in love does have an effect. I can think of one as I think of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah in the Old Testament was, was just horribly treated by God's people. The Scripture says that at one time that they took Jeremiah and they threw him into a pit. And the mud was so thick in that pit that he sunk down right to his very armpits. But you know, Jeremiah had compassion for the people. He wanted God to save them. And so Jeremiah began to weep and to cry before God. He asked God to save the people. So Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He's a man that had such deep conviction for his own people that he wanted them to be saved no matter what. You know, sometimes this preacher has to ask himself, when was the last time that I ever wept over lost souls? You ever ask yourself that question? Did you know that you are a, a witness of the gospel of Christ just as I am? And have you ever asked your question, this question, when was the last time that I was so burdened about a friend, about a coworker, about a neighbor, about someone I know, or even someone I don't know, that I was moved to tears because I wanted them to be saved? This is exactly what Paul's heart is in this chapter. He wanted his love for Christ to shine through so that everyone would know there was deep sorrow in his heart for those who didn't know Christ. You remember the scripture in Romans chapter 9? He said, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So even if God has given you the gift of preaching, one of the greatest gifts that we have in the New Testament, even if you have that and you do it without love, Paul says it amounts to nothing. But then he goes on, and he also speaks about great understanding. He says, now, what if we could understand all of the mysteries of God? What if we could pick up the Bible and all the things that have confused us for so many years that we really don't understand? What if all of a sudden all of that became clear and you understood all mysteries? Well, then he says, understanding is useless without love. You come into my office sometime, I, I would be happy to show you around the office and let you look at some of the collection of books that I've had over many years of studying God's Word. I'm so thankful for things that men have written that help me as I study the Word of God. But do you know that it's possible for you to sit down in that office over there and read every single book on that shelf and come to great understanding of all kinds of mysteries that maybe you never knew before or never understood, and yet you could learn all of that and come out with absolutely nothing. It's possible to do that. You know, I've seen preachers who become uh, academicians. They hole up in a seminary or a library somewhere, and they're, they're really not in the place where God wants them to be to affect people. There were people with great theology, and yet they never really amounted to very much for God. I think about a great theologian. I, I love the Puritan writers. Uh, if you come in my office again, you'll, you'll see that I have a lot of books that are written by Puritans. I love their theology, and I love the heart that they had for the gospel of Christ. The reason is because uh, most of what you read came out of sermons that they preached. I mean, just what they didn't just sit down and write books. These were sermons that they preached to their people. And so they really instilled a deep, abiding heart for God in the people. 
But there was one particular uh, Puritan writer who is considered to be perhaps the greatest theologian, one of the greatest theologians of all time. Depths of understanding that I know that I will never reach. His name was John Owen. Maybe some of you have heard of John Owen. But John Owen, being a great preacher, a great theologian, loved to hear somebody preach that was quite unlike him. The person that he loved to hear preach most was an uneducated Baptist preacher by the name of John Bunyan. Most of you know John Bunyan because he's the author of Pilgrim Progress. But if you put John Bunyan's uh, uh, knowledge, his, his academic knowledge up against John Owen, it wouldn't even compare. And yet John Owen loved to go hear John Bunyan preach. And he loved to hear it because he heard that compassion. He heard the love for the people. And he knew that that was so much needed in the ministry. You see, you can have so many letters after your name that you have to start a whole new alphabet to describe you. And if you don't have love, it doesn't amount to anything. Next, Paul talks about faith. Is it possible that you can have great faith and yet faith becomes worthless? Yes, it is. He says, if I have faith that's so great I can move mountains and I don't have love, I am nothing. So fourthly, we can say faith is a failure without love. You recognize where Paul might have got this idea? Where have you heard before that faith could move mountains? Jesus said that, didn't he? In the book of Matthew, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, If you have faith and doubt not, ye shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if you shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be cast into the sea, it shall be done. You remember we, we talked about how that 1 Corinthians most likely was written before any of the gospel accounts? How would Paul have known that Jesus actually said this? How would he know that Jesus talked about faith that can remove mountains? I think the reason that he knew it was because here is one of those instances where the Holy Spirit revealed special knowledge to him. He knew that Jesus said this before, and so he was able to bring it into this presentation. So he says then, you can have great faith, but if your faith is not motivated by love, then the works that come out of your faith will amount to nothing. You remember James said that faith without works is dead? Let's read what he says in James chapter 2. He said, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he have faith and have not works? Can faith save him? And he really means there, can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, being dead, uh, is dead being alone. Now, what he's saying is, do you suppose that someone could come to you and, and say to you, well, I'm really hungry. I don't have any clothes to wear. All my clothes are worn out. I need shelter. I'm cold. Do you suppose that you could say to that person, well, brother, I'm praying for you. I mean, I, I sure hope things turn out well for you. And do you think that your faith will help that person? James says, that's not going to help anybody. The only way that you're going to help this person is if in a heart of love, you see yourself in that person's position wondering if somebody will help you. So what do you do? You give him something to eat. You give him some clothes to wear. So he says, don't talk about faith until there is enough love to see yourself in that same position. But then he actually goes on, and he goes to the opposite extreme, because next he says, charity is clueless without love. In other words, you can give it all. 
Give everything that you have. Now, there's some people that are willing, most definitely, to give to poor people. Some people won't even pass a homeless person on the street without giving them something. People will contribute to all different kinds of causes. They'll give to UNICEF or some kind of world hunger relief program. And they give and they give and they give. And many times the only reason they give is to squelch a guilty conscience. Not because they love people and not because they love God. It's because it's so much easier to give money than it is to give of yourself. That's a lot easier. You know, Christians do that with missions. It's so much easier for us to say, well, let's give our money to the mission project and let the missionary do the work. That's what we're paying him for. Why do I need to talk to anybody about Jesus? We got paid people to do that. You know, I learned a lesson myself about trying to give money in the place of taking responsibility. When my children were younger, I used to have uh, a lot more money than I have now, and that's not saying much, believe me. Uh, but I had a lot more money than I have now. When my uh, kids, my, my two girls, turned 16, I bought both of them cars, bought new cars for them and, and paid for the gas. I see Kirsten over there punching her mom. Uh, I paid for the gas. And, and I paid for the insurance. I took care of it all. I took those kids on vacations. We went skiing. We did all different kinds of things. And I found out that it was real easy for me to throw money at my children rather than giving them really what they needed. And so rather than taking responsibility so many times, I could just pull out the checkbook and say, you need something? Here, you can have it. Now, I was often too busy to give them anything but that money. Well, thank the Lord for this. I, I turned out with some great kids. I praise the Lord for our great kids. But if you want to look at the, re, the one who's really responsible for that, don't look at me. Look at their mother. Their mother was the one that, that really gave them what they needed and what they wanted the most or what they really needed the most. Now, I'm telling you today, though, I've just made a confession. Don't kick me while I'm down. Uh, I learned from my mistakes, so I am trying to make it up with grandkids. I'm trying my best, and that's why I want to go to Kentucky tomorrow to see this little grandbaby being born. I'm trying to make it up. But let's talk about one more thing here before we close the message today. Paul also says, And though I bestow all of my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. And this tells us that suffering is selfish without love. When Paul says, Though I give my body to be burned, most likely what he's speaking of is, is uh, martyrdom. And you remember the story I told you about how Nero, the, the, the Roman emperor at that time, how that he would kill Christians and, and how really he would burn Christians alive? In order for Nero to be able to see in his gardens at night, he would take Christians and dip them in tar and set them on fire. They would be a living torch just so he could see to walk through the gardens at night. Over the years... Christianity became very perverted in this area. And so people began to believe that martyrdom was actually a way to curry favor with God. Martin Luther actually struggled with this when the, in the 16th century. So one of the things that he was into was self-flagellation. He thought by doing all these kinds of things, by, by hurting himself, that that would make him holy and acceptable with God. But he finally came to the conclusion that no one is justified with God except through faith in Jesus Christ. Anything that you do to the flesh, anything that you try to do to yourself to make you righteous, that's not going to work. No good works that you do, no way that you can torture your body, do horrible things to yourself, and it will not make you any more righteous with God. If that were true, 
than an Islamic terrorist who straps on a, on a suicide vest and blows people up. He would be the closest person to God there is. And why does he do it? He actually does it for a selfish purpose. Does he really love God? Is that his real purpose? No, the purpose is the promise of those 40 virgins or whatever it is when he gets on the other side to paradise. So it's really, even that suffering, it's a selfish motive behind it. But you know what God never asks us to do, what Jesus never is telling us to do right now? He's not saying for you that the important thing for you is to die for me. He's not saying you need to die for me. Now, uh, most of us are never going to be called on to die for Jesus. I've attended church nearly my entire life. You know the story. The first place I ever went when I was born was to church, and I haven't got out yet. I'm still here. And I have never met anybody in any of my churches that was asked to die for Jesus. But I have met many of them and all of them that have been asked to live for Jesus. Did you know that I could ask you to raise your hand today and I would say to you, how many of you in church today, you would die for Jesus? I don't have any doubt. There'd be hands all over the congregation. You say, I will die for Jesus. Tomorrow morning when you go to work, the big question is, will you live for Jesus? And most people, most Christians really don't. Well, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to live for Jesus? Well, According to this passage, certainly it would mean to love as Jesus loved. It would mean to have compassion as Jesus had compassion. It would mean to sacrifice your welfare above, above your own because that's what Jesus did, or above others, and that, that's what Jesus would do. Jesus never asked you. Jesus never asked you to lug his cross up a hill. You read that in the Bible where Jesus says you have to carry his cross up some hill somewhere? Does Jesus ever say, well, the thing I think you need to do is go put a bumper sticker on your car, honk if you love Jesus, and that's going to tell everybody how much you love him. Did you ever read in the Bible where it says the thing for you to do is to put a cross around your neck, put a crucifix on, and that way you can prove how much you love Jesus? I don't find any of that in the Bible. But what I do find is this. Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you that ye also love one another. By this, he said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Now, I want you to fill in the last blanks in your listening sheet today. Here's the point of the message. More than gifts, I need grace. Look back in chapter 12, verse 31. But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. The more excellent way that he's speaking of, what's better than gifts? He's given us the answer. It's the gift of the grace of love, rather. God has given you the grace of love. Now, you don't need to pray for gifts. I've, I've talked about that in a couple of messages. You don't need to pray for gifts. God gives spiritual gifts, and he distributes those exactly as he wants. So you never have to pray for spiritual gifts. But one thing you ought to pray for is the fruit of the Spirit. And you know what? What the Scripture puts up number one as the fruit of the Spirit. Paul says in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit, number one, above all, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Then he follows up joy and peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, and so on. But that is number one. Number one, right up front, the best gift, that, or the best grace of all that God ever gives, and the thing that you need the most 
is the grace of love. What's better than spiritual gifts? It's love. And Paul says that is the most excellent way. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, as we come to you in the end of this sermon today, we, we just thank you, Lord, for what's been revealed to us through your holy word and, and the love that Jesus showed for us and how that is to be an example of how we are to love one another. We fall so far short of this. Our anger, our disappointment with each other, trying to get back at one another, evil speaking that we do. Lord, may all of that be gone from us. Remove that from your body, the church. Lord, I pray that you might bless each one here who's here today. If there is someone here who doesn't know you as Savior, when we've talked about love, the only part that they'll be able to understand for right now is when you open their heart to the gospel and show them how much that Christ loved them, that he was willing to die. We just ask you, Lord, you would show someone this truth today. And then for others here that are Christians, may we really understand, Lord, that the greatest of all is love. And may we have that for one another. Bless in this invitation today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.